I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. The Rodale Institute, based in Cutstown, Pennsylvania, has been the leader in regenerative organic agriculture for decades. Dedicated to growing the organic movement through research, farmer training, and consumer education, the Institute maintains its founding principle that healthy soil equals healthy food, which equals healthy people. Jeff Moyer is Rodale Institute's CEO and a world-renowned authority in organic agriculture. His expertise includes organic crop production systems with a focus on weed management and cover crops, and he's perhaps most well-known for conceptualizing and popularizing the no-till roller crimper, which was discussed at length in his 2011 book titled Organic No-Till Farming. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast series, I spoke with Jeff about a new white paper put out recently by Rodale called Regenerative Agriculture and the Soil Carbon Solution, which identifies the potential of regenerative ag practices to sequester carbon and improve soil health while feeding the world. Tune in to hear about Rodale Institute's long history with the term regenerative agriculture, how regenerative ag techniques can be used to bring down today's climbing levels of greenhouse gases, how different types of nitrogen impact the carbon cycle, the importance of biodiversity, and much more. My name is Jeff Moyer, the CEO of Rodale Institute and am a lifelong organic farmer. I've spent probably 35 years or more as farm director for the Rodale Institute. I don't manage my farm at home anymore. My son does that. He's transitioned it into an organic dairy and and manages that. The, The heifers are at our farm at home, but I really have nothing to do with it except get in the way, give unwanted advice. (laughs) play with the grandkids. That's my job. Nice. How many acres are on your farm and how many cows do you have? My personal farm that that I own is relatively small. It's only 50 acres. I think together we own like 270 and I think we're, my son is probably farming a little over around 500, I'm guessing, and a little over 100, 110 dairy cows that he milks. Okay. Certified organic. Yeah. Okay. And so what sort of crop rotations do you do on your farm? Because it's a dairy farm, we're grow, we grow all of our own feed. There's, there's corn and corn silage and hay and, and haylage that we make and small grains, wheat. He also raises potatoes mm-hmm. and has a potato crop and that's a cash crop. Hay is a cash crop for us. Wheat is a cash crop. A lot of the hay goes into the dairy cows as does a lot of the corn. Because we have excess land, probably has corn to sell every year. But again, that's that's really his operation, so I don't claim any of that. <laughs> sure. It's all his. It's all his. Yeah, nice. Okay. The Rodale Institute has uh, released a new white paper, and that's uh, what I wanted to talk to you about today. Uh, okay. It's called Regenerative Agriculture and the Soil Carbon Solution. Uh, can you just share the premise of the paper and tell us why you're putting this out there now? Sure. If you, uh, if you step back in time a little bit, we put out a paper in 2014 called uh, Regenerative Organic uh, Farming, uh, a Solution to Climate Change. And it got a lot of attention from the general public, from the scientific community, uh, from policymakers, uh, both nationally and internationally. But the reality is, if you look at where we are today versus where we were in 2014 when we put out that paper, we haven't really made any of the necessary changes that uh, we believe need to be made in agricultural production systems to transform agriculture from being part of the problem to being part of the solution. Uh, And so we thought it was time to revisit that conversation. A lot of science has taken place from 2014 till now. Uh, A lot more carbon has gotten into the atmosphere. And we really believed that the time was right to change the structure of the paper, hence the title change, uh, 
to get broader acceptance of our conversation and to really not so much point out the problems that exist. Because I think people understand the problems. They may differ, as will your listeners, on the reason for the problem or whether uh, humans are impacting that in a negative way or whether it's naturally occurring cycles. or, or it, it, it doesn't really matter to me. What does matter is that we have solutions to those problems and the solutions are literally right under our feet. And if we would simply change the way we do the things that we do, we could sequester more carbon and have a really positive impact. And we felt it was important for us to write the paper from the point of view of being very science-based, but then also being written as an invitation for people to get on board and do what they can do to make a positive impact. Because we really believe that, uh, and the science would show and indicate that we can't continue to do what we're doing and expect the problem to get better. So regenerative agriculture has become a very popular buzzword recently, and I, but I understand that it was actually coined back in the 1970s by none other than Robert Rodale, so that's sort of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so different folks, of course, use the term to mean different things, though usually with a similar thread. So what does regenerative ag mean to you and to the Rodale Institute? I'm glad you brought that up because you're right. A lot of people are co-opting the word to mean what they'd like it to mean. There are some folks who would prefer to have the word uh, represent the status quo so that we can all say we're regenerative and don't really have to do anything differently. Uh, That really wasn't what Robert Rodale was talking about. So I'm going to step back in time just a little bit and bring your listeners up to speed to how we came up with that word, because it really is a Rodale word, a Rodale Institute word. Uh, As you may recall, going back way back in history into the early 1940s, uh, J.I. Rodale, our actual founder, put the word organic in front of agriculture. And from that point on, we we launched into this conversation around farming uh, in a different manner that removed synthetic pesticides out of the food production system and changed the way we think about the soil. And we had the, the, the organic movement. As that movement was being spread across the, the landscape, uh, it became to have multiple definitions. And many folks in the organic community, the Rodale family and, and Rodale Institute as well, really believed that someone had to take ownership of that word so that it had a, a strict meaning because it, it got so to the point that everybody could say they were organic and it was like, I say I'm organic, prove me wrong. We uh, petitioned Congress and got the USDA to take ownership of that word as it pertains to food and fiber production in the United States. And that, uh, that uh, theory has sort of spread worldwide now. Uh, and so now we had the word organic that had a really strict meaning. But in order to get that to happen, we had to give some things up along the way. The idea around continuous improvement got set by the wayside. Areas that focused on social justice, for example, Uh, there's no language or no lexicon within the USDA Ag Marketing Division to even discuss social justice issues. It's, It's just not on their radar screen. And so we had to set some of those things aside in order to get the USDA to take ownership of that word. And so Robert Rodale, G.I. Rodale's son, uh, very uh, early on, as, as early as the late 70s, early 1980s, began looking for another word that would signify how we could improve our organic systems, our soil, and still produce the food that we want. Most of the world gravitated towards the word sustainable or sustainability. Uh, it became a, a marketing word that was highly over-marketed. Every organization, every company had a sustainability department or uh, division. Uh, Every product said sustainably produced, which meant absolutely nothing. And so the word was overused to the point where it means everything and it means nothing at the same time. That same group of people that are involved in marketing have now gravitated to the word regenerative as they were looking for another word to take its place. You can only say sustainable for so long. You can only say new and improved for so long. You can only say uh, natural for so long, and then people don't see it. And so they latched onto this word regenerative. Uh, Robert Rodell's thought around regenerative really came from his uh, thought process around bicycle riding. He was an avid cyclist. 
He uh, picked up bicycling when he was in the 1968 Olympics. He was not a cyclist in the Olympics, but he was fascinated by the cycling team and, and human-powered locomotion, just using human energy. And so what, what he did was he, he would say, like, when I ride my bicycle, the only thing that wears out is the bicycle. I actually physically improve. My health gets better. Physically, if we were, instead of sitting here talking to each other, if we were out jogging, we'd probably get healthier. Um, and so he... And as he was thinking about that, he said, you know, the soil is the same way. If we exercise the soil and make it work, it's a system of biological components. We can actually improve it while we use it. It doesn't wear out. It's not a factory. It will wear out if we treat it like a factory. Mm -hmm. The bicycle wears out because we treat it like a mechanical device. Uh, I don't wear out. I can wear out five or six bicycles in my lifetime, just, uh, but I improve. I get better because I regenerate myself the soil can regenerate itself as well. So his thought process was if we can regenerate soil health, we can regenerate the um, economics and the spirit of a farmer. If we can uh, regenerate the farm community, uh, we can regenerate larger communities, we can regenerate whole societies, and it all starts with this concept around soil health. And so Robert Rodale was focusing in on that when he talked about regenerative agriculture, and always in his mind linking it to the word organic. So from Rodale's perspective, when you ask what does the regenerative ag mean to Rodale Institute, it for us it really means being uh, a stepping stone to move the organic community further farther, faster. Uh, so when, you know, we, we talk about regenerative and organic all in one sentence, because we really believe that in order to be regenerative, yeah, you, you really have to be organic. It's, it's a little disingenuous to say you want to be regenerative and you want to regenerate the health of the soil, but you still want to use all the chemicals that you use because they're counterproductive. It's like saying you want to be healthy, but you don't want to give up smoking. You know, it's, it's true, but saying it doesn't make it so, you know, you really have to uh, do what you need to do. And so we believe that you have to do something about that and you have to improve on the system. By the same token, to be uh, regenerative is a journey. It is not necessarily just a destination and we can all get on that journey regardless of where we are and make improvements in our system. If we're if in our production system, if we're focusing on something like soil health, if we could agree as a society that improving the health of our soil and sequestering carbon is important, hence the paper that we wrote, then there's a place for everybody at the table to make some improvement. Uh, does that mean that everybody is regenerative organic uh, right away? No, but we, we see that as the ultimate high bar goal that people should be striving towards if we really truly want to make our ag production systems regenerative. Okay, good. So there's a quote in the paper that says, regenerative agriculture is our best hope for a quick drawdown of atmospheric carbon. This certainly does give us hope that we can do something about the greenhouse gas emissions that continue to rise. And yet agriculture, as the paper points out, is still a net source of emissions rather than a net sink. So can you give us some background on where we stand on that? Well, I certainly can try. I'm not a soil scientist. We have a team of soil scientists that work with us here at Rodale Institute. And, you know, some of these questions may best be posed to them uh, if we want to get into the real, real details. But from a high level perspective, we know that agriculture is part of the problem. For many years, we have not addressed that because nobody really wants to point the finger at food production or fiber production. Uh, it's challenging to do that because we all eat and it means we're all part of the supporting that problem. On the other hand, if we don't consider agriculture as part of the problem, then it's really hard to consider it as part of the solution. And agriculture can be part of the solution. And people's purchasing habits can impact that solution. Uh, farmers obviously can't do what they're not incentivized to do uh, through the marketplace or, or, or other structures that you might have with government policy. I don't know of any farmer, and I've been, traveled, been blessed to be able to travel the world and meet farmers everywhere that I go. And I've never met a farmer yet who got up in the morning and said, my goal is to destroy the health of my soil, to produce a low quality product that doesn't really uh, give people the nutrition that they need uh, or any of the other things that happen in our food production systems. But the reality is we've incentivized many farmers, unfortunately, to degrade their soils, produce commodities at a race to the bottom price that doesn't support them to do the things that maybe we would want them to do as a, as a society when we look over overall. So I guess the, the, the point of the paper is that there, there is a problem. 
but there is great hope in the solution and that agriculture can play a huge role in changing that paradigm. And also that consumers have a role to play as well. You can't, no one should or could expect farmers domestically or internationally to do it all themselves just because they're uh, responsible for the management of those resources in the short term or that they may be on the front line seeing the problem. We can't expect them to do it without the support of all of society. So the paper kind of discusses that and, and gives people of all uh, stripes a place to plug into the system and a path forward. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and the paper makes a pretty big claim. It says that if cropland and rangeland across the globe were shifted to regenerative ag practices, those lands could sequester 114% of all global CO2 emissions. And that figure, of course, is based on a couple of quote-unquote exemplary cases of land management. The paper also acknowledges it's a thought experiment and says it's sort of unlikely that such a dramatic shift is going to happen right away, at least, on a global scale. But can you tell us about those two, those exemplary cases that this 114% figure is based on, what the practices were that were implemented and what the results were that they saw? Sure. I'm going to focus my comments primarily on the work that we've done here at Rodale Institute with our farming systems trial, uh, because that's where most of the data has come from. Now, if you look at the paper, you'll see that we did support that premise and the documentation that we uh, that we did here at Rodale with about 160 or 170 peer-reviewed research papers that when taken in whole really do support what we're saying. Is 114% a bold number? Yes, it is. We made a very bold statement because we wanted to have this conversation. If we just said 2%, everybody would have yawned and moved on and you and I wouldn't be having this conversation, nor would anyone else. On the other hand, we did not want to make a claim that could not be substantiated with science. And so if you look at the thought experiment and, and the papers and the, the, the programs and the projects that it's based on, you will see that if you do the math, it actually does work. Does that mean that every farmer in the country could expect the same results? No. Could some farms expect much greater results? Yes. Pennsylvania sits on relatively old poor quality soils. And yet with the math that we've done out of our long-term trial, and our long-term trial is now 40 40 years old, where we've compared conventional grain production, predominantly corn and soybeans. There are some small grains mixed in here and there in the experiment, but it's predominantly a corn and soybean experiment. Looking at that in conjunction with animal management and uh, legume-based systems, we can see that under optimum conditions, we can mathematically sequester that large of a percent of carbon. So what that's telling us is that even even in the worst case scenario, agriculture has a huge potential to sequester carbon more than any other industry. Uh, You can't take 100% of the carbon out of electric production. Uh, You just can't because it's not based on biology. It it gets back to that earlier conversation that Robert Rodale was having, which for him was really a thought experiment as well, when he was saying, we got to focus on the biology and and the power of the small, the microbiology of the soil. Uh, That's how all the oil got produced. That's how all the coal got produced. It's, It's millions of years of this plant Uh, microbiology interaction that sequestered all that carbon in the first place. We've burned it. We've put some of it into the atmosphere and now we need to take it back out. And if we rely on these basic biological principles and practices that exist in nature, we can do that. If, if you or I or any of your listeners uh, had uh, invented photosynthesis, we'd all be Nobel Prize winners. But the, the fact that it exists naturally and is around us all day, every day, we sort of take it for granted and think and dismiss the tremendous power that that process has to sequester carbon. Okay. And so I believe the locations you were looking at, you know, there's cover crops implemented and, and grazing and, and reduced tillage and things like that. Were there any like benchmarks that you could point to for soil organic matter increases or anything like that that was helping those farms achieve those, those carbon sequestration rates? Good point. There's a lot of forms that carbon takes and a lot of ways and places that carbon can be stored in the soil. So we're really interested in storing carbon in a fairly stable format, not, not all carbon is created equal. I always tell, particularly if I'm talking to a young audience, if you don't believe that, give your fiance 
a coal ring instead of a diamond and tell them to wait a while and it'll turn into a diamond. There's a lot of different forms of carbon. There's, uh, you know, tissue paper and there's lumber. If you put a match to tissue paper, it goes up in flames. That carbon goes into the atmosphere. Put a match on a log, it just goes out. But they're both carbon. True, there's only one C on the periodic table that we all learned in junior high school chemistry. Uh, but that C takes very many forms. So we're really interested in looking at where the carbon is, what form the carbon's in, and how stable and long-term it can be stored in the soil. And what we're seeing in our farming systems trial here is we took soil that was around 1.7% organic matter and took it to a little over 5% organic matter. Most of that organic matter is carbon. Now, it's stored in different forms. Some of it uh, could be volatile. Uh, but what's really exciting to us is that we're sequestering that carbon at greater depths in the organic system than we are in the conventional system. And the deeper you can sequester that carbon in the soil profile, the more stable it will be uh, lasting hundreds of years, not days or weeks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of my questions was specifically about carbon. It doesn't necessarily have stay below ground once it's there because it gets consumed by microorganisms and invertebrates and then releases carbon dioxide. So what are the mechanisms by which you're creating that long-term carbon storage? Well, and that's where I say it stores at greater depths, but there's many forms that carbon can take. And our goal is to sequester it in very stable forms that are very uh, lignous. That's getting back to that wood versus tissue paper conversation. If we can turn the carbon into wood and store it in the soil, it's not, you can let a log lay outside. It's going to take forever for that carbon to volatilize into the atmosphere versus a pile of manure or a bag of nitrogen that's going to volatilize very quickly. Uh, So we want to store it in a form that's uh, very stable and we want to store it at greater depths. Uh, We do that through, uh, you you alluded to it earlier, with different farm practices because it all comes down to implementing practices on the farm that we can use to sequester that carbon. Clearly, cover cropping is one of the easiest things we can do. Covering the ground with something green and growing, every one of those plants is a mini solar collector, and we can collect that carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in the soil. Yes, some of it is going to volatilize and go back out, but we can, we can hold on to large chunks of it. That's how we improved our soil from 1.7 to 5.7% organic matter by sequestering that carbon. So it's like putting $10 in the bank and taking one out. You know, I'll do that all day long. Um, yes, it's, it's not a perfect system. It's not leak proof but we're trying to plug the leaks and make the boat seaworthy. And so, you know, again, we'll we'll put thousands of tons of carbon into the soil and we'll take a few out and put thousands more in and take a few out. We know the microbes are going to give some back. That's the cycle. We can't stop the cycle. It's natural. But we can uh, do things from a human perspective that will help support the microbiology to do what we want it to do. Or counter to that, which is what we're doing uh, typically in conventional production systems using pesticides and and salt-based fertilizers is we are incentivizing the microbes to spit it back out. And that's what we don't want to do. So we, we, humans have a role to play in this whole enterprise, knowing that at the end of the day, we want to eat annual crops or graze cattle across uh, perennial grasses, but we all have to eat and no one's volunteering to get off, nor do we suggest people uh, need to get off the planet we suggest that we need to focus our energy on producing high quality, healthy food in a manner that both feeds people, but also preserves our resource base because we're going to have to feed people for thousands of years, not 10 or 20 years. Okay. Yeah. Now um, let's talk about the role of nitrogen in that carbon cycle. Uh, The paper talks about the type of nitrogen used in the agricultural systems is linked to the carbon storage capability of the system. So talk about that a little bit. Nitrogen is a little bit like putting a a match to that carbon. We talked about tissue paper, you know, in and of itself, tissue paper can lay on my desk for a thousand years, uh, but there's oxygen in the air. And if I put a match on it, it's going to burn up in a few seconds. Nitrogen is the match. Uh, It's the energy source that that carbon needs to, the the carbon is the fuel. Oxygen is the accelerator and we burn it off and it literally burns and goes back into the atmosphere. The same as if you're burning uh, oil or gasoline in your car. And nitrogen fertilizer is the match that does that. Uh, It doesn't mean, obviously, plants need nitrogen. So I can imagine some of your listeners going, ah, he's an idiot. You know, we we need nitrogen to grow our crops. And of course we do. But the form that nitrogen is in makes a big difference. Again, there's only one N on the periodic table, but nitrogen comes in many different forms. And it does make a difference to the system 
the form that the nitrogen is applied in. So going back to our conversation about cover crops, if we cover the soil with uh, a leguminous cover crop that pulls nitrogen out of the atmosphere, because uh, again, if you paid attention in junior high chemistry, aside from that periodic table, you might've learned that 70% of the air that we breathe is nitrogen. Nitrogen is not a limiting source on planet Earth. Uh, it is a, a resource on planet Earth. It is the form that it's in and where it's at can be limiting to plant growth, which is why we have legumes. So taking advantage of legumes and storing nitrogen in that form is much more stable than a liquid nitrogen or something that either leaches or volatilizes out of the system, which is very inefficient use of nitrogen. Yeah. And it uh, tends to burn carbon up with it when it goes. Okay. So now it's been a decade or so since the United Nations released a report saying that across the globe we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and yet they've only gone up over that time. So how do you foresee getting enough people on board to make an impact? That 114% carbon sink is based on the idea of this going across the world to everybody doing it. How do we get there? And if 114% is not realistic, what is, what's realistic, do you think? Well, I think I'll answer the last question first. What's realistic is really up to society to decide. We're saying 114% is possible. What do we decide is realistic? I don't know. How, what percentage of people are going to move in this direction? It's all controlled by the marketplace. So policy decisions and market decisions will control how we move. And so our paper was designed to inspire consumers, scientists, and policymakers to think about how they might interact with that number and that challenge and say, what part of it can we do? If people pick apart little pieces that they can do, let's see where it goes. You know, if we could, if we could do a hundred percent, would that make people happy? Yes. If we do 50%, is that worth doing? Absolutely. Is 20%, it's better than nothing. Uh, we have to start making a, a move. And uh, we threw that number out and said, that is potentially a realistic number if people ch change globally the way we produce food, not the fact that we produce food. We're not suggesting uh, by any stretch that we uh, replant uh, the United States in hardwood forests from here to the Mississippi and then tall grass prairie from there on with a few uh, million bison and some, uh, some Native Americans to manage them. That's not our suggestion. We're saying we can produce everything that we need. We can exercise the soil. We won't wear it out. We can improve it and we can sequester carbon along the way and still have all the food that we need to, to, to consume. We'll get back to my conversation with Jeff Moyer in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Jeff Moyer as he talks about the relationship between carbon and mycorrhizal fungi. We're learning more and more about the interaction between plants and fungi, how plants feed the fungi carbon, and fungi feed the plants nitrogen and phosphorus, among other things. The paper says that mycorrhizal fungi makes glomelin. Then it, the glomelin is largely responsible for creating persistent, stable soil aggregates that protect soil carbon from being lost as atmospheric CO2. So can you just talk a little bit more about how that works? Well, uh, sure. I mean, we know more about the ocean. We know more about outer space than we know about the soil that we, that we stand on. It's a very complex biological system. Uh, we're just on the uh, tip of the iceberg of learning everything that goes on in the soil and all that the soil does for us to keep us uh, healthy and alive. And the interaction between plants and fungi is one of those uh, interactions that we're learning about and we know something about it but not everything about it probably a little bit like COVID-19 we know more about it today than we did in in January but we still don't know and understand everything about that interaction that the virus has with us and that's something that we can literally test for and see because it, in, it interacts with us personally when it's underground it's much more complicated and, and hard to 
to examine and, and, and study. But we do know that funguses in the soil will produce glomalin, and glomalin is, the best way to describe it is it's like glue. It's a sticky, gluey substance that glues particles together. Now, when we spray uh, Roundup in particular, but other pesticides, herbicides as well, they tend to carry with them, while they are used as herbicides, they carry with them some antifungal properties. When we destroy the funguses in the soil, we destroy the soil's ability to produce this glue that holds the particles together. And that's why when we see uh, heavy rainfall events or flooding, uh, large volumes of soil physically leave the field and move offsite into uh, surface waterways and on into oceans or, or, or you know, downstream. So by removing those pesticides from the system, it allows the funguses to grow more rampantly, uh, produce more glue, hold more soil together. Uh, that, in conjunction with cover crops, prevents soil loss during rain events or heavy rain events. So everything is, is sort of linked together. I would argue as well, though, that tillage can have the same impact. So organic farmers need to pay attention to these systems too. You can imagine if you've got uh, a fungal filament, which is actually a thread in the soil, they're microscopic, there are probably millions of miles of that thread in, in just a few handfuls of soil. So it, it's, there's a lot of it, but it's microscopic. Uh, you can imagine that tillage, the f you can physically destroy those threads as well as chemically. So if we challenge ourselves as a society and as farmers to say, fungal threads are really important to us. What are we going to do on our farm to encourage that or to minimize the degradation of those fungal threads? Then we're going to farm differently than if we say our goal is to produce commodities at the lowest price we possibly can. Uh, because when you do that, you sort of minimize the metrics by which you're judged on. And we, ju we focus on one metric, and that's the only goal. And everything else, be damned, that's what we're going to do, because that's what we've incentivized farmers to do. Uh, I think that's wrong. And, and farmers are slowly waking up to that across the country as they become aware that soil health is important, human health is important, planetary health is important, and soil can play a role in that. And I think farmers are rightly so, beginning to ask the right questions. You can't go to a farmer, well, you can't go to a farmer meeting at all now, but a virtual meeting or farmer meetings that I've gone to in the past, you can't go to one without hearing a conversation at every level around soil health. Uh, farmers are beginning to recognize that we have to include that metric in our decision-making process on how we're going to produce and what we're going to produce. Mm -hmm. uh, so the fungal hyphae are just one piece of a very complex soil microbiological system, a microbiome, just like the microbiome in our, in our physical gut that we hear about all the, all the time. And those of us in the dairy industry have known for a long time that if you have a cow that's not doing well, uh, because cows regurgitate their, their food and chew their, their cud, they have multiple stomachs, you can literally take that cud out of one cow's mouth, put it in a cow that's not doing well, and that cow will often perk up because you've re-inoculated their microbiome into, into that cow and, and repopulated that. And that's the power of microbiology. We can re-inoculate that soil. We can populate that soil with uh, good fungi, and, and it can begin to grow. The problem that we have is every time we do that, we come back and destroy it with either tillage or chemicals, and then we have to start all over again. A great system if you're selling biological microbiome inoculants. Uh, and so we're suggesting we change our production strategies to really help support the soil health that we all, I think, are beginning to realize we need. Yeah. Okay. And so you talked about tillage already, but uh, looking at the mycorrhizal fungi, that also is, suggests looking at the types of plants that we're growing. So I know the report talks about trees and perennials and other fibrous root systems. How can farmers encourage more mycorrhizal fungi? Yeah, I think the main point of the paper was to really, if you, I, th I think if you look beyond the specifics, was to look at uh, biodiversity. And uh, biodiversity perennials can play a role there. Uh, trees can play a role there, depending where you are and what you're doing and, and how that works. What, really what we're saying is biodiversity is critical. Uh, we typically as humans don't eat the same exact food all day, every day. We have a diverse diet. Uh, nature needs a diverse diet too. Unfortunately, I mean, if you're in the, we'll pick on the Midwest of the United States because it's large corn and soybean 
growing area. If you have a farm, uh, and I've talked to farmers that grow nothing but corn. I have a friend here in Pennsylvania that grows 3,000 acres of corn every year. And he's been doing that for over 30 years, conventional no-till corn. Next year, he'll probably plant corn. And this year, he planted corn. And last year, he planted corn. And five years from now, he'll probably plant corn. You can only imagine that that soil biologically is not very diverse. It is set up to be in tune with the chemical soup that he applies that will allow him to grow that corn. It's pretty much an input in, output out system. And by his own admission, his soil is dead. He said, my soil is dead because I killed it. I killed it over the last 30 years. However, he said, that's what I was incentivized to do. That's what I still do because that's where my market is. Um, we're suggesting that maybe some uh, crop diversity would do his soil well. Understanding that, you know, he's incentivized in the marketplace to just grow corn because he's gotten really good at that and he has good corn storage and he's got good uh, equipment for that and his mindset is all around that and if he has to grow a multitude of crops, uh, he's going to find that challenging. He's going to have to learn some new skills. Is he w interested in doing that? I don't know. He has begun to entertain conversations around that, recognizing that when he transfers that land management or ownership to another generation, is he giving it to them better or worse than he received it? And he said, I'm giving it to them worse. Mm -hmm. Does that make me feel good? No, not really. Uh, uh, but I don't know what to do about it. And, <laughs> and so this paper was trying to uh, inspire us to have a conversation around that. How do we support farmers to improve biodiversity on their farm? How do we encourage them to think about mycorrhizal fungi. Not that every farmer has to become a soil microbiologist. That's not my suggestion, but uh, farmers are really good at doing whatever we ask them to do. They are some of the brightest, we know they're the hardest working people on the planet and they'll get this and they're smart and they can make it work. We just have to give them the tools, the incentive and, and the inspiration to make it happen. Again, farmers grow corn. Obviously, we like to grow corn or soybeans or peaches or whatever it is you grow. But the more, even people with a peach orchard know that the more biodiverse the orchard floor is, the easier it is to manage the above ground pests. Because there's a, the plant has half of its entity in the soil. The other half is above ground that we see, but the other half is below ground. And there's a huge interaction going on there that we are totally oblivious to because we don't see it, feel it, or, or eat it. Um, you know, I mentioned that uh, my son has a dairy farm on our farm here in Pennsylvania. Uh, typically, we can graze around, uh, around one cow per acre. Uh, it, it takes to produce the feed for, for one cow, and a cow weighs maybe 1,000 pounds, 1,200 pounds, something like that. But below ground, we're grazing 10 times that amount of microflora and fauna. So there's a lot of microbial life. If you'd pull it out of the ground, there's more below the ground than above the ground. And it's, it's, it's all feeding, you know, 20,000 pounds of microbes eating and chewing on roots down there, doing what they do. And we're totally oblivious to that. We just don't understand it or know it. And we're suggesting that we pay more attention to that if we're interested in being part of the solution. Excellent. I'm glad you brought up grazing. The emissions related to raising livestock has become something of a political hot button. But as you say in the white paper, livestock itself is not the problem. So tell us about regenerative grazing and how it can be part of the solution. Livestock have been part of the planet and are important to building soil health. They're, they're a tool that can be used to improve soil health. They are also a tool that can destroy soil health. Hogs, for example, you know, if you have a pastured hog operation, which we have here at Rodale Institute, hogs poorly managed will destroy the soil. Properly managed will help improve soil health. So it all depends comes down to the interaction that we have as people with the animals that we choose to raise, uh, whether they're for food, fiber, or, you know, however we're, we're using them. Uh, taking feed from a grain production area, uh, shipping it by truck or rail into a CAFO and spoon feeding it to cattle to get a high daily rate of gain on livestock is a problem. Taking those same animals and putting uh, one third of our grain producing areas into pasture and rotating that pasture across corn and soybean land and grazing cattle on that land, you produce the same amount of, of meat. You reduce your methane and, and all the greenhouse gases by a tremendous amount and you still get the meat that we want. But grazing animals is a lot different than raising grains and force feeding them into uh, a CAFO situation. Now, again, I understand that we've gravitated towards CAFOs because it's been a race to the bottom to keep food 
artificially low price. And we're doing that by externalizing all the real costs, which we're beginning to see in human health and planetary health. And how are we going to pay for that? I, I don't think we can pay for it. That's the problem. And so we've got to change the system and uh, think of new, more modern ways to produce the animals that we want. And I believe that's grazing. So while we have a lot of CAFOs on in the country today, I would r really hope and think that if people pay attention to this paper in 50 years, we won't. We mm -hmm. will have those animals out on pasture eating grass the way they were designed to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Back the way it used to be. Well, not, not really back to the way it used to be, forward thinking. It's really the future, not the past. I don't want people to think that what we're talking about is going backwards. We're talking about going forwards. Over the last uh, 50, 70 years, we've had this great experiment around, uh, in this case, CAFOs or with, with a, a chemical production model. And we're saying that we've, we've seen the maximized potential of that and also the maximized destruction. And, and, and we can't just use that model. If we think you're going to be spraying Roundup in 500 years and feeding uh, large quantities of CAFO animals in feedlots of tens of thousands, that's just not going to happen. I mean, even the people who produce that product don't think we'll be spraying Roundup in 500 years. And you say, okay, well, 100 years. Yeah, probably not. 50 years? We hope so. Because they're, but, but we know long-term that is not the, the production model that's going to support the population that the planet has or that it will have with the healthy food that we need to, to keep ourselves healthy. It's just not going to work. That model has too many flaws in it, and we need to begin to look to a, a future of, of a different model. So bringing modern science, modern technology into the world of some of the things that we already know, like photosynthesis and cover cropping and crop rotations and biodiversity, adding those tools in with modern science, we will get where we need to go. And we will find a solution in agriculture uh, and, and be part of the success of the planet, not part of the failure. Okay. Uh, yeah, one of the things that I really liked about the paper is that it just, it points to a lot of different practices that can support carbon sequestration and acknowledges that some practices work in some operations and not necessarily in others. And there's no like one size fits all solution. Uh, it does leave it really open though for farmers who want to jump on board or take their practices to the next level. What do you suggest they focus on first? Well, I, I always suggest that farmers first focus on uh, gaining some knowledge uh, about their own operation, uh, thinking about it a little bit differently. You know, I, I would I suggest to most farmers, if you take the resources that they have to work with, land, machinery, labor, uh, bank account, all the things that they have, and you say the very best thing I can do with that is produce number two corn, or the very best thing I can do with that is produce breaker eggs or and you go really that's the best you could do there might be a better way and so it's really difficult for us as farmers because we're we're so nose to the grindstone moving ahead in, in what we do and, and working so hard sometimes it's difficult to pick your head up and see where you really are and say how do I, I change that so the first thing I ask farmers to do is really take a, a realistic look at what they're doing why they're doing it how they're doing it uh, understanding that we're all capitally invested in a particular production model, but when it comes time to change, when it comes time to buy new machinery or put up new infrastructure, what should that look like? Should it just be a replication of what we did, or should we really be thinking about how does my interaction with the soil degrade it or improve it, and how do I begin to think about that? And if we do that first, then some of the real practical things to put to work are simple, like cover cropping. You know, we're entering into the fall season now. Everybody across the country is out harvesting, finishing up harvesting, and realistically, from now till spring, uh, most of the United States is going to be brown. And that's really sad because it should be green. It should be green with cover crops. So if we were incentivizing farmers or, or making it practical, yes, we have some equip funds that are out there to help farmers purchase some cover crop seed. But at the very best, it's designed to be break even. It's not really who wants to work at break even. If, 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 you know, if it costs me $5 a day to come to work and I get $5 at the end of the day, why would I bother? And I, and I understand that. Uh, so how do we create 
policies and, and infrastructure that really help farmers do what we want them to do. But planting cover crops is probably the easiest thing to do. It, everybody has the machinery and the equipment already. Uh, they are be using their soil resource base at a time of the year when they're not currently using it. So like in Florida, a lot of people cover crop in the summer because it's too hot to farm. Uh, in the north, the Midwest, they'll be planting cover crops now or maybe even after a wheat harvest earlier in the year. But if, if all that soil was green instead of brown, think of the amount of carbon we'd sequester. Think about the soil that would be protected from erosion from wind or water as the, as the winter storms come across the country. Uh, I think we'd be doing ourselves a great service by just taking that one little step. Then what we've seen is when farmers take that first step and they gain more knowledge, it's almost like a snowball. You want to do more because you've you've re-energized yourself, you've regenerated your spirit, and you re-energize yourself around this concept of soil health, and you start thinking, I've improved my soil health. I saw that. I, I can tell the difference. How do I do more? What's the next thing? I want, I want to do more of this. And, and it gives the farmers the opportunity to get really excited and energized around their operation in a way that they haven't been in recent years. Okay, good. One of the companies that Rodale partnered with for this report is the Soil Carbon Initiative, uh, which doesn't place any particular emphasis on organic production. Rodale, of course, is deeply associated with organic. Tell me about why that partnership is working. Sure. Uh, if you look at the paper and the way it's written, we spell out in the executive summary and throughout the paper that there are philosophical differences between uh, the Soil Carbon Initiative, and others in the regenerative ag space, and Rodale Institute. We clearly focus our energy, our launching platform, uh, as being based on organic. And we discussed that earlier in the relationship that organic has, in our mind, with regenerative agriculture. But we also realize that uh, in order to make the impact that we're talking about and transitioning land into a carbon model that begins sequestering carbon and not emitting carbon, we need to cast a much larger net and create a funnel that's fairly wide at the top to get everybody onboarded. So there isn't one farmer on the planet that couldn't find something in this paper that they could put to work. Are they all going to become organic? I believe so but not for a long time. It's going to take time. And so we want to get people onboarded and moving in the right direction. So, and many farmers will, they'll say, okay, regenerative organic, it's the high bar, it's the gold standard. I, I don't see the path there, or I can't get there in the short term. Isn't there something I can do in the short term that helps me move in that direction? Of course, we've agreed that we have a destination to go to. As long as we all get on the road and heading in that direction, we're making a positive imprint on on the planet and on society. And so we decided that it was, when it comes to carbon sequestration in particular, we have more in common with the soil carbon initiative than we have in difference. Uh, and, and so we have to work in that group. This, this country, the world in general has gotten, in my opinion, far too divided as we see that in politics, we see that in religion, we see that in race relations, we see that everywhere across the country. We believe that when it comes to carbon sequestration, we can agree on certain things and let's work on that. This paper was specifically looking for common ground and the ability to cast a wide net and onboard every farmer in the world to begin thinking differently and, and moving in the right direction. Nice, okay. And so now I'm just going to step back a little bit because you've already alluded to this, but uh, farmers are by definition invested in having healthy soils because the soil is their livelihood. But it's hard work to transition to new practices. It takes financial investment as you talk about changing infrastructure. And ultimately, any practices that stand a chance of being adopted have to pay for themselves. So how are farmers seeing these practices pay off? Well, yeah, we could probably have an hour-long conversation around that one particular uh, question. First of all, I, you know, you say farmers by definition are heavily invested in the idea of soil health. And I would argue that we have actually encouraged farmers not to be heavily invested in soil health. Over the past 50 years, farmers in general have not spent a lot of time thinking about the health of their soil. They're focused on the crop, because we've told them to focus on the crop. So they'll know a lot more about the genetics of the variety that they're planting or the application rates for the chemistry or the fertilizers that they're working on. And they focus on that because we've 
told them to, and not so much on the health of the soil. The health of the soil was almost secondary. Uh, I think clearly over the last uh, 40 years, we've encouraged farmers to reduce tillage because we've come up with technologies and equipment that enables them to do that. And we, we've discussed throughout our conversation how tillage can be, uh, have a negative impact on, on soil health. But partnering reduced tillage with high inputs of chemicals sort of defeats the purpose in, in, in our mind. So we know that farmers are financially invested in whatever their production strategy is. And, and so the second part of your question, how do, you know, how do we make uh, incentivize people to adopt new practices and, and how do we pay for that? That's a big conversation to have and, it, and it's going to involve policymakers. It's going to involve consumers because at the end of the day, somebody has to pay for changes. We think if we, uh, the economics studies that we've done in partnership with land-grant universities clearly point out that these systems are all doable. They can be implemented. There is already enough money in the system to support it. We just have to change how it's allocated. So, for example, if we agree as scientists and as a, a society and, and as farmers that cover cropping, for example, improves soil health, then if you've improved your soil health, you're probably, and our science would showcase this, and so do the algorithms, that you're less likely to require to be paid for crop insurance. You should get a reduction on your crop insurance. So if farmers could document that as they implement these systems, they're less of a draw on the crop insurance program, and they could get a 50% reduction in their crop insurance premium to implement these systems. Now it becomes profitable. And you say, well, sure, I, I would do that because I, I, I pay for that. If you don't smoke, you get lower life insurance costs. If you're a safe driver, you get lower insurance on your automobile insurance. If your house burned down five times, I'm imagining your homeowner's insurance goes up. I don't know that for a fact, but I'm not an actuary. But uh, the more you use the program, the more likely are you to have to pay for it. So, you know, there's money in the system in a lot of different places that we could start to rearrange and repackage to help farmers do what we as a society want them to do. If what we say is, hey, come on, you're putting too much soil into the surface water, knock it off. That's a little disingenuous, isn't it, uh, for anybody to say that. It's hard to think about soil health when it costs you $4 a bushel to grow corn and you sell it for three ninety. That's that's a little tough to say now also improve your soil health. So we have to come up with strategies to help people. And we can do that if we as farmers suggest that, as taxpayers suggest that, and as consumers say, we will reward you in the marketplace if you do that. We can do it. Excellent. Okay. So are there any resources that you can think of that farmers should know about that can help support their adoption of regenerative practices? Well, lots of folks out there that are uh, there to help you, uh, anywhere from your local NRCS office to your uh, grain elevators are all helping to incentivize folks to move in a positive direction. Here at Rodale Institute, for example, we have a uh, crop consultancy. So we can literally come to your farm office or your kitchen table and help you walk through some of these programs and move in a positive direction. And here's, here's how incentives can work. We're fortunate that we worked with our, we're in Pennsylvania, we worked with our state legislature, which is a Republican legislature. We have a Democratic governor here in Pennsylvania. But we created a uh, program that helps farmers transition to organic. The consulting fee is covered 100% by the state of Pennsylvania. So they cover the fee to put a consultant in a farmer's kitchen at their kitchen table or in their home office to help them work on these transition models and incorporate different practices into their system. Why? Because at the end of the day, they're going to be more economically viable. Obviously, they'll probably pay more taxes and, 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 and you know, into the services, uh, and they become a, a positive component. We have a lot of farms uh, in this state and across the country that are in a tough financial situation. And we need to incentivize them to change the model of production to, to be more economically viable. Pennsylvania is a net importer of organic products. So we have farmers who can't make money growing what they're growing. And yet outside product is coming in and that is making a profit. And we should be able to, uh, not that we don't like every farmer in the world, but we're, you know, you have to take care of yourself first. 
before, you know, they, they always say in an airplane, before you help your child, put your own mask on and then put the oxygen mask on your child. Yeah, we have to put the oxygen mask on ourselves first. And every farmer needs to do that. One of the real beauties of the, of the, the regenerative organic system and the organic systems is that it's not an all or nothing proposition. We can all agree that uh, the United States government gets a lot of things wrong, no matter which side of the aisle you're on, but they do get some things right. One of the things they got right in the organic model that the USDA oversees is that you can start with any part of your farm that you want to, either by enterprise or by acreage. So if you've got a 400 acre farm and you want to take 10% of it and start with 40 acres, God bless you, you can start with that. So we can all start and get our toe wet, learn something. Uh, if you start with 10% of your farm, you're not really risking that much because you, you, you know, unless you're a really poor farmer, your chances of complete failure are, are, are almost none. Uh, you're gonna be successful. So your, your losses, and you, you're gonna learn a lot and you start thinking about your, your system differently. And our experience has been that farmers get really energized around their farm operation again and it does lift their spirit and helps all of us. Yeah. Well, I've certainly heard from a lot of people who are doing cover crops and other practices. Well, it's made farming fun again. Yeah. You know, I hear that a lot. So I yeah, think as do we. Yeah, because you you're getting reengaged with the system. And and for some of us, you know, our farms are our place of work. It's our hobby, it's our sport, it's everything rolled into one and it, it can't all be uh, just work, 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 make money, make money, make money, spend money, spend money, spend money. It has to be inspirational in some ways. And, and I, I agree with you, farmers have told us over and over that as they try to incorporate some of these practices, they may have success, they may have failure, but they're learning a lot. And that engagement is, is really exciting and motivating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about your book uh, about a decade ago. In 2011, you wrote a book called Organic No-Till Farming. What, if anything, has changed in your approach to farming since then? Well, the first thing I will say to you and your listeners is that uh, working with Acres USA, who is the publisher of that book, uh, a second version of that book is coming out. It's going to be called Roller Crimper Technology. So looking at the technology that we've used to allow us to farm organically in a no-till system, but now expanding the use to conventional agriculture and finding uses on almost every farm for a technology that can help them reduce their pesticide use. Maybe not eliminate it, not everybody wants to do that, we understand that, but if you wanted to plant GMO soybeans and you could plant them into a rolled cover crop and not have to spray Roundup, that's more profitable. Maybe you can take some of that profit and plant more cover crops. So we're looking for ways to incentivize farmers to do that. So since that book came out, you know, I, I would say that we're fine tuning the system, making it more applicable across a broader spectrum of crops. Initially, we were looking at corn and soybeans. We now have a lot of vegetable farmers that are using the technology, conventional and organic. So it's, there, it's a crossover technology. We have orchards that are using the technology for orchard floor management. So again, uh, as we've put the technology out there, which is something Rodale Institute is really good at doing, uh, encouraging people to look at it, writing a book, then, you know, once you give that tool to farmers and, and allow them to expand and explode the use of that, it's just fantastic to watch the creativity that takes place as you go, wow. I, I, because personally, I never would have thought of managing an orange grove floor in Florida with a cover crop roller, but they're doing it. And it's really helping them manage insect populations. So they're using, we use it as a weed management tool, they're using it as an entomology tool and have been able to reduce uh, uh, pest applications because of the way they're managing the orchard floor with cover crops. So it's exciting. And I would say that it's really changing. We now have millions of acres of farms using the technology uh, and seeing that grow, uh, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Yeah. And so when is that book coming out? I think they're hoping to have it out before the end of the year, uh, sometime over the next uh, eight weeks or so. I I've seen the cover. It's going to be green and it's going to be roller crimper. You'll see it on Amazon. You'll see it at Acres. You'll, farmers or listeners can find it wherever they shop for their books or literature. It should be available. Okay, great. And people can always write to me and I will, I will be glad to try to help them either find the book or answer specific questions that they have. Rodel Institute is a 
a solutions-based resource nonprofit. We have our own science, our own education, our own research, uh, but we're happy and we share it transparently with everybody. So anyone who wants to interact with us uh, can find us online at uh, rodeoinstitute.org. Um, and we encourage anyone that wants to follow up on any of this conversation, whether it's around regenerative organic, organic, or just um, making some changes on their farm to sequester carbon. Love to talk to them. And we are open to the public. If people want to drive in, we have a lot of farmers that drive across the east to the East coast and stop and, and visit We're they're welcome anytime. We're excited about the future of agriculture. We see the promise of agriculture to have a very positive impact on the world, both in terms of human health and planetary health. And it couldn't be a more exciting time to be involved in agriculture. We're excited to see more young people getting into agriculture. We need young, bright people, and they're inspired by this new technology and, and new ways of doing things. And so I, I hold out great hope for the future. I think it's very bright. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Jeff Moyer of the Rodale Institute for this conversation about the soil carbon solution. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yenner Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jakeurlock at lessettermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. <laughs>